We are racing against the clock. But what if we just choose to tell ourselves that this is our moment? Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, the project of the Post Carbon Institute. I'm Vicki Robin, your host. Today, we're with Sapora Berman. Sapora has been designing and implementing environmental campaigns and working on environmental policy in Canada and beyond for over 20 years. She currently is International Program Director at Stand.Earth and the Chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Committee, dedicating to phasing out fossil fuel production and fast-tracking progress towards safer and more cost-effective solutions. She has been honored multiple times, as well as threatened multiple times for her work. She's risked and persevered, and as this interview shows, never ceded power to those who think they have a corner on it. I heard Sapporo speak many years ago about her work on stopping the Kinder Morgan pipeline in Canada, and her clarity and strategic focus informed everything I did afterwards. We love bringing you these gritty visionary voices and we need your financial love to keep these interviews going. Consider donating. And now our interview with Sephora Berman. Hey Sephora, thanks so much for joining me and everybody with our one question interview series uh, with cultural scouts, people who see far and have a long history of activism asking them to tell us what green healthy shoots they see coming up in the cracks of the old system now that we're in a time of pandemic with no end in sight and economic precarity and racial justice uprising and you know um, polarization and as you and i well know you know in the background the climate crisis has not slowed down just to give us a break <laughs> it's been roaring ahead um, and, and waiting for us as we get out of some of these immediate challenges and our coast is on fire. So yours have been pipeline and tar sands battles, but I really, it's almost like you're every woman, you know, who sees something, you know, it grabs hold and you say this far, no further. And, uh, you take it up and sometimes win, uh, but always persist. Um, so, uh, here we are. Uh, and uh, so put on your headlamp, look into the murk, help us through your eyes, see more clearly so we can act more courageously. Take it away. What could possibly go right? Thank you. Thank you, Vicki. I love the question and I love the way that you um, just framed it around, you know, green shoots um, in, in the murk because I, you know, I've been working on climate change now for a long time. Um, I've been working on environmental campaigns now for 30 years and climate change for close to 20. And I actually feel more hopeful right now um, than I have in maybe ever, which is a strange thing to say for someone who, you know, I spend a lot of time reading the science, um, looking at what's happening around the world. And, you know, we all know the bad stuff. Um, we see it every day in our lives and the fires and the smoke and the droughts and the floods. And we see it in our, um, you know, whenever we, you know, turn on the computer and, and then the news is everywhere. Um, we know what's going wrong. Um, but um, taking a, a, a long view, having worked on this for a long time, um, I do want to talk about what's going right because 
for a long time working on these issues, it was, it was like you were, it was almost impossible to get people to engage because, um, you know, climate change is, for so long has been the invisible threat. It's been the threat in the future. We need to act now because in the future, the world could look like this. Um, that's really hard for people if they're not experiencing it in their daily lives. Carbon dioxide is invisible. It's hard to see. Um, and I think one of the mistakes we made, honestly, as a movement is that the movement grew out of policy wonks. It grew out of all these people who were looking at, well, carbon tax or cap and trade and, you know, vehicle emissions regulations and et cetera. And, and I can remember as a younger activist starting to get interested in climate change and starting trying to figure out, well, what do we do? And, and there was always, um, you know, well, you know, we need to be looking at 1990 benchmarks and we need this percentage reduction by this date. And, but actually this percentage is the wrong benchmark. And, you know, it's hard to get excited. It's hard to get people excited um, about that when they kind of barely understand it. And so you felt like you had to be an expert to engage. Well, I, my background is in the forest movement and those are much more tangible battles in a lot of ways. You can see this forest coming down, you know this place. And I think a lot of us who came into the climate movement later, um, you know, we, um, we were moved by a sense of place and people. And, and, I, and so the, the, the fossil fuel fight emerging in the center of the climate debate, the pipelines, the, this LNG facility, this refinery facility, this coal plant, um, those started to make the, uh, the choices that we have to make more tangible. And over the last decade, I've watched that grow and grow and grow to the extent that it is now, I think, fueling um, mass movements around the world. And so that's one of the green shoots. We have more engagement today on the issue that I think is the greatest challenge of our age on climate change um, than um, we have ever had. You know, I've organized a lot of rallies in my time, maybe too many rallies. And, mm -hmm. and you know, can we get a thousand people? You know, huge rallies, can we get 10,000 people? I can remember working on the New York climate march years ago and the idea that we had 300,000 people there was, you know, it was so incredible. Um, well, last year, a million people marched in Canada alone on climate change, inspired by the youth movement, Fridays for the Future and all of that. Around the world, millions and millions and millions of people are now engaging in these issues. I mean, it's in part because of the bad news, because they can actually see the impacts, like in California right now with the fires, or people are starting to see the impacts more and more in their daily lives, more people. Um, but also, I think, because these tangible fossil fuel fights have made the climate debate tangible. They made it something that people can wrap their heads around, they can think about. Um, and that, I think, has made a stronger movement. The other thing that I think is a green shoot is the fact that this movement, this strong movement is diverse. For the last several years in Canada, I've been organizing with Indigenous uh, leadership, under Indigenous leadership. Indigenous communities and Indigenous leaders are at the forefront of the fights against so many of the expansion of the tar sands or the pipelines like Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, and it's, the, it's brought together the scientists, the activists, the youth um, with uh, those who have a deep sense uh, of what it will mean to lose for history 
and culture and human rights and 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 the air we breathe and the water we drink you know the water protectors coming into or the climate movement or maybe the climate movement coming into and lifting up the water protectors i'm not really sure has made us a, a more diverse and stronger movement and i think we see it also around the world with human rights advocates and environmental justice advocates who have been fighting you know, the unjust and unequal pollution from fossil fuel refineries or major oil development from Nigeria to California, now connecting that um, with the climate movement. Uh, folks fighting for their land and eminent domain, farmers in Nebraska, you know, joining up uh, with others in the climate movement to fight those infrastructure fights. Anything like in nature that is more diverse is stronger. And so I think we're a lot stronger than we were before. Um, so we have a stronger movement. We have more people seeing and taking action and understanding what's happening on climate change. And simultaneously, we have a revolution in technology. So um, we have seen every day, we see new technological breakthroughs for the electrification of our world, because that's what the solution is ultimately. It's about more efficiency and it's about more electrification so that our systems can be run on renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, instead of um, on the fossil fuels that are killing us. And, and so what we've seen is major technological breakthroughs, more breakthroughs in the last two years than in the last 20. In electric vehicles, in battery storage, in concentrated solar, and the list goes on. So what that means as those breakthroughs happen is that prices drop for the solutions. So we have seen a dramatic decline in the price for renewable energy to such an extent that it is now cheaper in many places of the world to build large scale renewable energy solutions than it is to build oil or gas or coal. Um, and that's really critical. So if we have changes in technology, and we also have changes in finance, the drop in price, and we have more engagement from civil society, that starts to create political space for decision makers to actually act. Because ultimately, we're not gonna get it right unless governments have the power to stand up to the fossil fuel industry. Because that is actually what needs to happen. So right now, um, I'm working on um, a new global fossil fuel treaty, which is uh, a big idea. Um, but the reason I started working on it is because I actually think governments are ready to talk about something of this scale. I think we know that civil society is ready to talk about something of this scale. And I will never forget the day that I searched through the Paris Accord for the words oil and coal and gas and fossil fuels and I couldn't find them because our current international agreements do nothing to stop the expansion of fossil fuel production. They're only about emissions. And that is, you know, the fossil fuel industry successfully dialing that in. So every company and every country in the world currently believes they can continue to build as much oil, gas and coal as they want. And actually the UN reports were on track to build 120% more oil, gas, and coal than the world can safely burn under a 1.5 degree scenario. So we actually need to stop expansion, not just in Canada or California, but everywhere. And the only way the world has ever come together to address a global security threat 
to stop the expansion of a dangerous good everywhere has been through international cooperation and agreements like this. We're calling it the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, modeled in part after nuclear non-proliferation. Because we need to stop the stockpiling, we need to put our intellectual and our financial and our political capital towards the solutions, and we need a globally negotiated just transition so that equity is at the core of who transitions and how fast, who gets to produce fossil fuels as the world is phasing out fossil fuels, and how much. And we already have a number of countries who are interested in it. We have hundreds of organizations who have already signed on to the fossilfueltreaty.org to endorse it. Last week, we launched it for the first time talking about it publicly. We had leaders from the youth movement come and endorse it. We had Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, and it's real. And I think it's exciting to actually be campaigning and calling for something that is commensurate with the scale of the actual problem. Instead of just pushing around the edges or fighting project by project. Because if there's one thing we know, it's that we need big, bold breakthroughs because we are racing against the clock. So that is so much in there. Um, yeah, one thing, one question I have is, do you think it took this much pressure to create the breakthroughs? You know, like you've just told us a story of 30 years and, you know, a story of, you know, and we've been quite self-critical in our movements, you know, oh, we were policy wonks and that didn't work. Or, oh, Jimmy Carter shivering in the White House in a sweater, that didn't work. You know, we've been critical of ourselves for not, um, for missing the mark because the march of the pollution, yeah. the carbon pollution has gone on and on and on. And we've watched that line go up. And, um, you know, it's been a tough, <laughs> it's been a, a tough haul, you know, we're on the 49th yard line, and um, the skirmish is really tough. And so what I'm hearing from you is that the pressure of the urgency is is precipitating and you know the technology coming together so much is coming together and also the the thing the, the sort of the head to heart part of it you yeah. know it was you started out because you fell in love with the forest and then you became an expert in policy because you wanted to protect your forest but you didn't talk about the love you talked about the policy and is it that we're back to the spiritual aspect of it. I, I just am curious about, you know, your reflections on like, what is tipping us um, in this moment? Tipping is exactly the right term because social change isn't linear. It doesn't happen like this, you know, progression and oh, okay, then we're gonna change policy. No, think of other great moments in history. It, it happens because of tipping point moments. It's like the, uh, you know, the a bubbling and a boiling up um, of all of these different pieces, the finances, the technology, the engagement of society. And so we often do beat ourselves up because the, you know, I'm not trying to underplay the problem. Right now we are racing against the clock. We have not bent the curve um, on emissions. They continue to go up. It's a massive problem. It has to be dealt with in this decade. But 
let's not forget that what we're doing is literally confronting power in all of its sources, in every way you understand that world, word. Because the most politically powerful people in the world are actually the investors and those who run the fossil fuel companies. They have been the strongest and most powerful companies in the world and they've had the greatest political influence. Look at the billions that the top oil companies have spent just since Paris in lobbying our governments to not act on climate change. And so policy after policy has been um, reduced. So these are, these are very powerful people who wanna hold on to the fact that they own the source of production for all of us around the world to move around, to talk to each other, to live our lives. And so what we are talking about is redistributing power and energy in every source, every idea of that word. If we are actually producing our power and energy from the sun and the wind, you know what? Nobody owns that. No one person owns that. And that's an entirely different model than the model that industrial society was built on of fossil fuels. And so it, it's taken us a while to figure out how to have a global conversation to, to shift that, how to engage at all the levels, finance, technology, policy, and civil society, unrest and engagement. Um, but I think that we are even more powerful if we tell ourselves a different story. What if the story we're telling ourselves is that this is our tipping point moment? And that, yeah, it's, we're racing against the clock. The fires have started, the floods have started. There, people are, more people will lose their homes today as a result of climate change than war. We are racing against the clock. But what if we just choose to tell ourselves that this is our moment? Because what we're hearing is that Every day, more and more major financial investors are divesting from fossil fuels. The largest banks in the world and the largest insurance companies in the world have all in the last year said that they won't fund new coal development, new oil development, new oil sands or tar sands development. So we're starting to see major financial institutions. We're starting to see millions and millions of people engage. We're starting to see all of these pieces at once. So what if we actually just tell ourselves that we were learning? We made exactly. some, we had some wins, we had some losses, but we got stronger and stronger and stronger as we were learning. And now this is our moment. And this is our moment to propose some significant bold shifts and new ideas to change the landscape. Um, and you know, that's what I'm holding on to right now. That's what keeps me going every day when I think about these issues. Yeah. That is so beautiful. I just feel like we've been we've been on this sort of you know collective scouting mission, like like who is holding who is holding us back to, from having the world that we know we want? You know, you can do poll after poll. You know, this is what the people want, but somehow or another we can't get it through. And I think you've nailed it about it is about money and power, and that mm -hmm. money buys power. And so it's, it's about finance, it's about the money system, it's about people knowing they can prosper without the addiction to the thing that we thought was necessary for us to prosper and have all the energy we need and have the happy lives we want. And also what I hear you doing with this new, um, <laughs> with this new initiative is saying we are power. We're not petitioning power, we, we're, 
we're it. You know, we mm-hmm. hold power now. So I just feel like you've, um, as they say, what do they call it? Bearding the lion in its lair, you know? And um, wow, what a great, inspiring message. Uh, and I know you weren't doing a sermon, but I, it, it landed on me like, um, like a new energy for a new year. And um, mm. You know I mean? Well, you know, I am Jewish and, I know. and we, we just had Rosh Hashanah and, and I have been thinking a lot about the new year, what we can learn from all of what we've all collectively experienced. And, you know, what we can learn from it gives me hope too. Um, it's come at a very high price, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, but we actually have a collective global experience of knowing that we have to listen to the science and that if we right. act early, we save lives. That's exactly what needs to happen on climate change. Exactly. Thank you so, so much for taking the time and um, yeah, just allowing that beautiful spirit to pour forth after the cleansing of the high holy days. Yeah, Yeah. well, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review which will help this hopeful message get out to more people. And check out the Post-Carbon Institute website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks to all our donors for their support. Thanks also to Cher Miller, Amy Boringrud, and Clara Winter at Post-Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. 